0: Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday. We have another busy show. We'll be talking more about that deal when it comes to the little mountain lands in Vancouver. Still a lot of questions over what is going to happen to that property moving forward and when people might actually see housing built on that large piece of land around 37th and Main Street in Vancouver. We are starting though in Surrey where a lack of heat in some of the portables on Surrey school grounds has students left Learning in jackets and gloves, certainly not an ideal environment for learning. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Lizanne Foster, first vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Lizanne, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Uh, What is the situation? What is happening with some of the uh, portables? uh, How many portables uh, in Surrey?
1: So at the beginning of the school year, we knew we were waiting for 53 portables to be placed in schools, and there were many, many classrooms at the beginning of the year that were um, students were not in their classrooms because the portables were not hooked up. As of a couple of weeks ago, we still had 35 portables that did not have heat. So around the time that the cold snap happened in late October, we had quite a few portables that had no heat and you can imagine how cold it was um, you know during those few days. As of now we understand that there are 15 uh, portables still without heat.
0: And even though it's not as cold as it was uh, like you said people will remember we had uh, that uh, very cold weather those few days at the end of Mm -hmm. October. Uh, So what did that make it like inside the portables that didn't have heat?
1: So teachers and students had to wear clothing as though they were outside, so jackets and gloves. Um, and, you know, whenever we have um, excessive temperature, either too much or too little, this impacts the way kids feel. It impacts the way humans feel. Um, and so that had kind of ripple effects into the classroom. If you've got kids who have to wear jackets and wear gloves, and are feeling uncomfortable because they're freezing cold and teachers also having to do that. It doesn't, you know, it just adds to an already difficult um, situation in classrooms when you've got other issues happening at the same time.
0: Have you been given a reason as to why this has happened, given that we knew some time ago how many portables were going to be needed in Surrey, where the portables were going to be set up and and in use? Why, or have you been given an explanation as to why so many of them didn't have heat?
1: So this is what's incomprehensible to us. You know, as teachers, we are in the business of the future. We are preparing students for their future lives teachers spend a lot of time planning future lessons we know the district does future planning the district had just one contractor we understand to hook up all those portables so there should have been an anticipation that that one contractor would not get around to 53 portables in time before the cold snap happened we understand now that since that cold snap happened and it's clear how uncomfortable the classrooms are that they've now hired Two more contractors to hook up the propane and the heating to those classrooms.
0: And so have you been given a time frame on when all of the, the existing or the, the outstanding, the 15 portables without heat, when those will have heat hooked up?
1: No, we haven't. Although in the meantime, the When the when the cold first happened, they provided one space heater for each of those classrooms. And when that proved to be inadequate, they then provided uh, two or three space heaters um, for classrooms. So those don't completely replace having you know indoor heating, uh, but it did take the edge off. But that was after the cold snap when temperatures started to rise a, a little bit.
0: Right. But even in the weather that we're having right now with the rains and it's very damp, I would imagine, even if we're not talking about sub-zero temperatures, being in Mm -hmm. a cold and damp portable isn't ideal either.
1: No. Yeah. And, And it's on top of other difficult, you know, situations. So you've got overcrowded classrooms. You've got a lot of students in our classrooms right now, who need support, who are not getting support. So on top of a already difficult working and learning um, situation, you add, you know, low temperatures. And so physical discomfort on top of all the other discomforts. It's not, you know, it's really not pleasant.
0: Is this an issue, it seems like, especially given the below zero, the the sub-zero temperatures, is this an issue that WorkSafe BC is involved in?
1: We're not sure yet about that. We've just had our members, over a dozen of them contact us and tell us about the the cold. We're not sure if they've rep- um, made reports to um, Worksafe BC, but Worksafe BC is all about prevention. You know, we have uh, the the employer has an obligation. And employees have an obligation to ensure that there's preventative measures in place. Well, we are in a school district, and we're beholden to the district to provide heating in our, you know, in our classrooms. And so, it's really up to the district to ensure that they are, you know, that the, the learning situation in classrooms would kind of fulfill WorkSafeBC uh, conditions for working.
0: And so as you understand it, then the, the kind of the, the temporary solution for these portables that are still waiting for the propane to be hooked up, they have space heaters that are there, like you said, to take the edge off. Are there any concerns with that as well, that these are students in these portables that are now relying on space heaters?
1: We've we've got lots of um, distress calls in from members, and yes, there's lots of concerns about the current situation. And we've um,
0: our health and safety officer has been in contact with the district about these concerns. And and have you heard back from the district at this point? They're always doing the best they can with what they have. So the latest
1: we heard was that they hired two contractors and they are providing space heaters and that they're aware of the problem.
0: Have you heard from parents or have any parents been talking or, or asking about this?
1: We haven't heard from
0: parents. Parents would, because this is
1: mostly elementary schools, and they would contact the school's teachers, and those teachers are our members and they've been contacting us. But we haven't heard directly um, from parents. We sometimes do. There are times when parents phone us directly, you know, when there's something that they're concerned about in the district, but not yet about this issue.
0: Right. So at this point then, a bit of a reprieve in that, again, it's not as cold as it was for those few days where we had that cold snap. But are, are you mm-hmm. confident that the heat will be hooked up in a, in a timely way now that they've hired more people to do that and the, and all of the portables will get heat? I'm sorry, but No. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I- I don't have confidence that 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 will happen.
1: It's just you know it, given kind of given the record you of what's happened before. We knew in May last year that we were, were having, you know, unprecedented um Uh, increase in students we knew that we needed more portables we knew we know that you know the weather changes september october the weather changes if we know all these things if we know absolutely you can predict there's going to be cold weather and the district knew that this was going to happen why what i don't know what the obstacle is in ensuring that kids have comfortable learning conditions you know to be
0: comfortable to learn um in classrooms in surrey Lizanne, thank you uh, for talking uh, with us about this today and uh, bringing up these issues. I appreciate you making the time. Thank you very much. Well, the city of Saanich has moved one step closer to banning retractable leashes when it comes to when you're walking your dog, the leash where you can kind of choose at what length it's going to be. Before we get to my next guest, just wanted to play for you a little bit from the Saanich Council meeting. This is Councillor Karen Harper making an amendment to the bylaw to further define what a leash is
2: that section 1c definition of leash be amended as follows leash means a rope chain cord
0: leather strip or other physical tether which is used to restrain an animal and is a non-extendable leash so first for greater clarity in case people don't quite understand what i did this has removed the non this has removed the retractable leashes from the definition and i would just comment initially on retractable leashes that Retractable leashes are generally dangerous to both pe- people, pets, and the environment. So there's multiple reasons for doing that. I think when we first got into the definition of leash, I made the comment only somewhat jokingly, that a a leash bylaw, whether our definition of leash is a little deficient. So we definitely need a definition of leash. All right, that was Councillor Karen Harper talking about this move that will effectively lead to the banning of retractable dog leashes. Well, Rebecca Bretter is joining me now, Animal Law Lawyer with the Bretter Law Corporation. Rebecca, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks for the invite. Well, thank you for doing this. I will fully admit I was a bit surprised that this was something that a City Council was spending a lot of time on, and more <laughs> so by the, the one comment the Councillor made there that that retractable leashes are dangerous to people, pets, and the environment. What are, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Oh, gosh, is what I would first say. Um, well, let me just clearly set out that I'm against this ban uh, I think there aren't enough off-leash areas for dogs it, in British Columbia, and it's something that we see everywhere across this country, uh, that dogs just don't have enough spaces to be able to fully exercise. And these retractable leashes is one way that we could give dogs a little bit more freedom. So I'm, uh, I'm just opposed to this ban. At point, like, just period. But that said, I do understand. I'm not saying that they're perfect, and that just like some dogs shouldn't be off leash in in certain areas uh, because their people, their guardians, are not responsible. These retractable leashes could be problematic if they're being held by a problematic persons. So, because they are in essence almost like some people treat them as as dogs off leash because some of these retractable leashes are so long. But let's assume that the majority of people are responsible. I think we need to do that. I don't think it does anyone any favours to, to have this band. In terms of what Ms. Harper said about that dogs are dangerous for the environment, I don't know what she's referring to there. I mean, I'm open to ideas. Um, I, I'd like to hear what that is. But when she says dangerous to people, I think I think what she's referring to is if if the leash is really long, these um the some of these retractable leashes and actually a lot of them now the way they're made it they're thin they're quite thin and they are hard to see so if the dog is a good few meters in front of the person and it's that, let's say they're going around the corner and someone is oncoming towards them and they may not see <laughs> they may not see the leash they could trip over it and i don't mean to laugh but it's just i i, I could see how that potentially is is maybe problematic for some people Um, And maybe what she's referring to also, I mean, I I don't really know. I'm only guessing. Um, Maybe what she's referring to about it being problematic towards dogs or dangerous towards other animals and dogs is that sometimes if people are not careful with these retractable leashes, they don't have a good grip on their own dog. So if the dog is too far away from them, they can't uh, bring the dog back in from a potentially dangerous situation, whether that's running off onto the road or meeting another dog. So personally, I'll just give you an example, just speaking from my own experience. I have one of these retractable leashes for my own dog. And if I'm walking him on, in an on-leash area, so where he, where he has to be on a leash, I do use them, however, or, or this leash. However, if I see another dog coming, I pull him in. Because you never know if the other dog is going to feel comfortable with my dog running up to him on this long leash. So you have to always think about, use your common sense and use your decency as a human being you have to think of the other person or another and another person with their dog as well. So we do have to use them responsibly.
0: Right, and everything that you've pointed out there, and I think this is what what might be frustrating to people as well, everything you have pointed out to me goes to the owner. It's not the leash. It's not whether or not the leash goes a certain length or, like you said, yeah, right. they are hard to see. Uh, they, they can, if your dog gets too far away, uh, the, uh, the dog could potentially get into traffic. All of these things that I think they mm-hmm. were they were pointing at that they are potentially dangerous. It goes back to the owner and the owner, whether or not you know how to use this device or if you're using it properly.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the way I treat, for me personally, I treat my retractable leash as though Bowen, my dog, is off-leash. So if I'm, let's say, even in an off-leash area, I walk him daily in an off-leash area. But if I see that another dog Uh, may not feel comfortable for whatever reason, I call him in. In the same way as if I have him on a retractable leash, if I see another dog coming, if I don't know that dog, I pull him in so that he's close to me, so that I could really have a close sense of the situation, so that I don't put my dog and the other dog at, at risk for a potential conflict. So I think we have to use these responsibly in the same way as we need to be careful with our dogs for our own dog's sake as well as for other dogs. So I really, really don't think that banning these leashes is going to get to the root of the problem, that there is a problem in Saanich. I'm I'm not too sure there is. But if there's a problem with irresponsible dog guardianship, then there are other ways to deal with that other than banning leashes. And one way is through the use of enforcement of their current animal control bylaws. So if someone is as an example, of someone is walking a dog on one of those retractable leashes and their dog causes harm to another dog and it's that dog's fault, the dog on the retractable leash, then there are ways to, uh, to find people or to, um, or to deal with the situation other than you know, banning the leash. Because you want to be dealing with the problem, which is usually the dog guardian and not the leash itself.
0: Right. because I thought that, too, when, when looking at this and looking at this story, that if somebody if somebody is not a responsible owner and not using, like you said, not using their common sense, then they're probably going to also be that way, whether or not they're using a retractable leash or what is now going to be uh, acceptable in Saanich was it a two meter leash.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, generally speaking, uh, two meter leash is kind of the standard Um, So for for leashes, if, if a dog has to be on leash or dogs that have been designated as aggressive or dangerous, normally their leashes cannot be longer than one to two meters. So requiring that all dogs be limited to only to nothing longer than two meters, I think will affect their welfare. And the last thing we want is to take more freedom away from dogs. They don't have enough as it is, if you ask me, and if you ask many dog guardians out there.
0: Well, and, and something you mentioned too, and and if, if there are dogs as well that can't be off leash, whether it's because yeah. they, they run, they don't have good recall, or like We're you said, reactive. they're reactive. They're reactive. And the retractable leash, I've had both types of leashes. I don't love the retractable leash, but I do understand it. if you have a dog like that, because when you go to an off-leash area or you go to an open field or somewhere, that's how, like you said, that's how you can exercise your dog, and you don't have to worry about your dog running away or chasing after the dog. And it seems like this ban doesn't look at the different scenarios. It's very. It seems very narrowly fo- focused.
2: It is, and it really doesn't consider the welfare of the dog at all, I mean, one, what I see, not only with Bowen, my own dog, but with other dogs, one of the reasons for taking our dogs out, it's not just for physical exercise, but it's for their mental stimulation. So you could see them sniffing all the time, right? And one of the benefits that I see with these retractable leashes is that if you're in an area that it's safe to do so and you're smart about and respectful about oncoming people or oncoming dogs, the, the dogs are able to go further, to sniff into bushes and sniff that ground in that kind of weird area that he or she may not have been able to get to if the leash was only two meters. Because these walks, we do need to remember that walking dogs is not only for their their physical exercise, but it's also for their mental stimulation. And I think these retractable leashes help with that.
0: Have you heard of a band like this anywhere else or before? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I have
2: not. And it just it's really for me, I, I find it frustrating and and saddening that we're seeing cities, some cities uh, taking away off leash dog areas, and I totally get that that's controversial because some people don't want any dogs off leash anywhere at any time. And then there are many, many dog owners who who believe that we don't have enough spaces, safe places for dogs. So, removing this retractable leash is another way of, I think, interfering with the welfare of dogs.
0: Well, it's uh, certainly getting a lot of attention and a lot of feedback, probably more than the council in Saanich was anticipating. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Jill. The well, Vancouver Island hockey team has announced that neck guards will be mandatory for all players during every game, and this comes after the death of player Adam Johnson in the UK. Johnson, a 29-year-old Minnesota native, played 13 NHL games with the Pittsburgh Penguins. He was playing with the Nottingham Panthers of the Elite Hockey League, the Elite Ice Hockey League, on Saturday when his neck was cut by a skate blade during the second period, and certainly his death is being talked about and has already led to that change with the Vancouver Island hockey team and we're also hearing from the WHL that neck guard protection will become a requirement for players because of this death well joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Cody Carlson the head coach of the Saanich Predators thank you so much for taking the time today
3: no problem. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
0: this is a change and we're seeing other hockey leagues and other teams call for this or, or say that this is going to come into place as well. What has been kind of the pushback or, or the reason why hockey players haven't wanted to wear neck guards?
3: Um, I would say it's the cool factor, to be honest with you. Uh, I guess it's never really been mandated. It's, it's never been necessary before. There has been accidents. Um, but not so many deaths. But I think now seeing such a tragic thing and social media spread such uh, awareness about the incident that it's, you know, why not wear a neck guard? If it can save your life, I think it, it should be mandated.
0: Right. And, and I think that's some of the the um, response to this has been too, that, that what a, a, a sad and very tragic uh, f- accident that happened when, when Adam Johnson's neck was cut. But uh, that, and and I suppose also that it took something that gruesome to get this conversation really happening and to get these neck guards brought in. But at least I suppose there are teams like yours and other, other leagues that are looking at this very seriously now.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think you never want to see something hap- happen like that, but obviously it opens a lot of eyes and with social media these days, I mean, it gets spread out so quickly. And I think, even for the parents' sake, watching their children watch, you know, it, it, the game's so fast, players are so strong these days that it could happen at any any time. You know, I, I had a ten year career playing professional, and I never even thought about it while I was playing. But, you know, watching it now, it, it could happen to anybody.
0: Uh, right, and and when you look back as well, I think too. I mean, you have to go back quite a few years, but I mean, there was a time when helmets weren't even uh, thought of as or weren't considered mandatory protection, and we certainly have come a long way there.
3: Yeah, definitely. The game's always evolving. And there's, you know, it's sad that it takes incidents like this for people to wake up and realize that your body's important. I mean, the team I'm coaching right now is 16 to 20 year olds. They have their whole lives ahead of them, you know? So it's important to protect the players at all costs.
0: I think so. Your team, the, the Saanich Predators, uh, is the first or at least one of the first to come out and say, yes, we absolutely are going to mandate neck guards. They need to be worn by players. So uh, uh, were you the first one, as far as you know, to do that?
3: As far as I know, yeah, it was kind of a personal thing for me as I played in the Eihl uh, a couple years ago. So, I, you know, I. One of my XD partners is the general manager in Nottingham and knowing what those players are going through, what the franchises are going through and even the fans of how they're all dealing with all this traumatic stress. And, you know, so basically it was just a personal thing for me. It was out of respect and I thought it was the responsible thing to do for my team
0: well and even when you say that and and like we've been talking about how this has really uh, reverberated around the hockey world and outside the hockey world with people that that are hearing about this and seeing this but my goodness being that that you played in that league and knowing exactly uh, what what people are going through that that has got to make it a lot more uh, seem a lot more personal i would think
3: absolutely and i think that's why it wasn't even a thought for me it wasn't even discussion with my ownership or anything or the players i thought there would be some pushback from the players but as soon as i kind of gave them my insight to the league and the players and how they're dealing with it and not only on adam johnson's side but mr petgrave's side as well you'd never want to see one of your players be put into that um situation as well you want to eliminate on both sides of the accident and uh, you know what if a neck guard can prevent that then why not
0: um, you, you've kind of answered my next question, but I was curious. When you told the players, look, we're, we're going to lead on this and these net guards are now going to be mandatory, what was the reaction?
3: It was kind of like there was no really conversation. I think everybody was on board. Every, everybody realized how serious this accident was and nobody would want to have, you know, put themselves in that position as well. I thought there was going to be pushback, but, you know, with my, my group, I was very, very happy the way they
0: responded. The the neck guard itself, and when you talked about the the cool factor, that it's it's not a a cool looking thing. What is it specifically? Is it also uncomfortable? In that, is it the material that it's made of that it needs to be to be effective?
3: A little bit, yeah. So there's well, there's a million different types. There are thicker ones. There's uh, longer ones. But basically right now we're using, they're basically made out of T-shirts with Kevlar and it's like a turtleneck pretty much. So it's very breathable, not restricting at any means. Um, The guys, you know what, they're fine with them. They wore them last night in Port Alberni in our game, all 20 guys. There was no issues, no complaints. So there's so much technology nowadays that they're very restricting. Or not very restricting, sorry.
0: Right. Um, And did you already have them or did the players have to go out and get them?
3: Nope. Our owners uh, purchased them immediately after I requested them, and we got them from a local sports store in town in Victoria.
0: What does a, a neck guard cost?
3: They're about thirty five ninety nine.
0: When and when you think of uh, what they can do and and what they can prevent, that seems like not much at all, doesn't it?
3: No, especially when hockey sticks are about five hundred bucks. <laughs>
0: Um, we've seen the the WHL come out now also saying that neck guard protection will be a requirement for players in that league what are your thoughts on the fact that that I know you were you were the first to do this and announce it for your team but that others are following suit and we're seeing more leagues do this
3: like I said before I think it's the most respectful thing and the responsible thing to do all those WHL franchises just like myself they have a responsibility to protect their players and players on the opposing teams and I think it's that's the way it's going to go there's going to be more conversation and i hope there is
0: have you had players injured or have neck injuries in the past
3: well obviously there's been injuries but no cutting of the skate like from the right. skates or anything like that we've had no serious you know knock on wood but uh, at any time it can happen i in my career i've seen a few wrists and achilles tendons been sliced by our skates but um you know, those are salvageable, but it's nothing like the neck, obviously.
0: All right. Well, and uh, you mentioned this. So does everybody then, uh, all, all of your team members, they have those neck guards and they'll be good to go moving forward?
3: Correct. Yep. It's mandatory. And, yeah, going forward, everybody seems fine with it. So I'm happy with the guys on our team.
0: All right. Cody Carlson, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it.
3: No problem. Thanks a lot.
0: Well we have been talking about the little mountain lands in Vancouver. Those are located around 37th and Main Street and if you've been in that area or you know what we're talking about you will know that uh, they have been mainly empty for many many years and behind fencing. Well yesterday at Vancouver City Council the council voted to drop conditions that uh, it has held over a long delayed condo and social housing development for those little mountain properties. So the move will affect the development to buy uh, the developer, Holborn Property, on the lands, and it would effectively remove the requirement that the developer build social housing units first. And Councillor Christine Boyle voted against the motion and uh, said, well, she said a lot at the council meeting yesterday. Here's just a little bit of that. And
2: they're coming to us saying that they, that they uh, can't finance the condos they plan to build uh, and want to get off the hook on building the social housing as quickly. Um, I don't believe it. I think it is ludicrous. Quite frankly, I think it's infuriating. There've been too many delays,
0: too many excuses. Enough is enough. Now, even though three councillors were opposed to this, it did go ahead voting seven to three to eliminate the occupancy permit holds on the market condo components of that development. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Michael Geller, real estate consultant, also president of the Geller Group. Michael, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today.
4: It's it's my pleasure, Jill.
0: And I I noticed uh, I checked out uh, a link that you had sent, and this is actually a story from September of 2012. This was a story in the Vancouver Sun where you were also quoted talking about perhaps the inexperience of this developer, but this also shows just how long this has been going on.
4: That's right. It actually goes back to 2008 when the province initially offered the land for sale. And I I have to clarify, I was one of the on one of the bidder teams. I was working with another developer. I thought it was a wonderful opportunity. But when the bids were uh, received, the government basically told us that someone had bid substantially more than we were bidding. And, of course, that was that was Holborn. And so I have watched this development closely, like many others. And I must confess, last week when I read on Twitter that... Uh, the city was going to be considering what essentially amounted to leniency to the developer. I felt almost exactly the same way as Christine Boyle, and uh, and I expressed my views. But others contacted me to say, basically, look, this is a disaster. But if we don't do this, there's a possibility we won't see any of the social housing, and the province won't get it. A- the money that's owed, which is in the order of $290 million. So I basically shut up for a little while, and, uh, and I understand why the councillors, those who voted in favour, I think most of them were as upset as Christine and uh, others were. But let's hope that uh, we now see something happening on that site because it's most important.
0: Uh, well, and we talked with the counselor uh, Mike Klassen, he came on the program yesterday as well. Now, he voted in favour of this, but he also said this will likely go down in the history books as uh, a, a prime example of how not to do these projects and uh, that we can learn from this. But his argument for, for voting in favour of this, part of it was that that was the only way to make sure the project still goes ahead. Uh, is, that, is that the case?
4: Well, that was certainly the information that was shared with me. Now, I too, even though I am often labeled a developer, I too am somewhat suspicious of developers who claim they can't arrange financing when they do, in fact, have lots of other major assets. I mean, this company owns the Bay and a large chunk of property downtown. They're reportedly one of the Malaysia's wealthiest families. But that said, developers oftentimes do load their properties with mortgages, and I think Tom Davidoff mentioned that to you yesterday. Um, so I think we have to simply accept what we've been told, and, and now, though, ensure that the city and the province work closely to monitor what, what Holborn does. One reason, though, Jill, I wanted to chat with you about this is because some are saying we must never let this happen again. We must never let developers buy public land and redevelop older public housing projects. I disagree with that. In fact, I I spent 10 years at CMHC, and I worked on the south shore of False Creek redevelopment, and there have been a number of other successful redevelopments of some of these old public housing projects like McLean Park and Raymer and so forth. So I do hope that this disastrous experience, and it has been a disaster, will not taint all the other potential opportunities.
0: Do you think this particular case, because we are talking about a a, poor, a a big piece of land in the city of Vancouver, but the province is also involved as far as lending the developer money, BC Housing is involved because of the social housing component of this, because there are so many different people or different groups involved, is that what made this, this more complicated and the fact that it was all done, there was a lot of, it seemed like there was a lot of secrecy?
4: Now I think there's no doubt about that. And in fact, at the very beginning, there wasn't a clear statement by the province and city as to what precisely could be developed on the land. It was being left up to the province to encourage the developers as they did to bid for higher based on higher and higher densities than the city was indicating would likely be achievable. So you're absolutely right. From the very beginning there there was a problem. So it was pointed out by Mike Klaassen, and he's correct. I mean, he's a smart guy, and I basically have a lot of respect for him. He was correct that what the province wanted was to get a very large sum of money promised for this property, even if it wasn't paid, so that they could then start to spend money on other social housing projects without it adversely impacting the way the books looked. It was a really an accounting Uh, matter that encouraged the province to seek as as high a price as they could get and they did achieve that by offering i think 211 million dollars in interest-free loans for 18 years (laughs) it's quite astounding and now many of us understand why holborn actually went to court because they didn't want the terms of the deal made public but as uh, Davidoff and others have said, you know, we have to look forward. We can't just look backwards. Although I, there's no doubt, it, it does it does bother me that on top of everything else, Holborn is not even paying the empty home tax for all this land that's been lying fallow. And that, to me, is grossly unfair because there's a lot of other people in this city who are being charged the, the empty home tax on vacant land, oftentimes unfairly, but that's another story, I
0: guess. Well, no, and it's certainly part of this. And it came up at that council meeting before the vote was held and this decision was made. But I would imagine, too, when you look at, and, and a lot of it, uh, full credit to, to Vancouver Sun reporters, uh, Dan Fomano and Laurie Culbert, for digging into this. And they've done so many stories on this and getting those details. Uh, like you said, the development, Holborn didn't want those details out there. But But yourself, when you look at it through a development eye, imagine that deal, though getting $211 million interest-free for that length of time.
4: And one of the concerns I had is that if it becomes so obvious in public that you can bid an excessive amount of money with some comfort that you can go back and renegotiate the deal a little later on, that that's a dangerous precedent because there's a lot. You know, we repeatedly hear others say, we need to make more public land available for development. And I... I agree. I agree with that. So that is another aspect of the deal that that was troublesome. And uh, I think we're all I think we're all pretty upset with the way this one has turned out. What is most astounding to me is that Holborn was in the council chamber yesterday, mm-hmm. but because they didn't sign up, and because apparently councillors are not allowed to ask questions, to my mind, it was. It was so very odd that they weren't there explaining face-to-face with all of us what really has been going on. I, I, I just don't understand why they haven't proceeded with the development. It is so hard, notwithstanding my comments that they're inexperienced and don't know how to do business or how we do business in Vancouver.
0: But uh, certainly, and maybe in 2012, but certainly they've built many things and uh, have have gained more experience in the past decade. Uh, Michael, do you think that this will lead? I mean, is there any chance that the social housing component of this doesn't get built?
4: No, I actually do believe the social housing will get built. Uh, there's a committee that apparently has been set up by the city. I also know the new chairman of B.C. Housing, Alan Seckle. He's an incredibly talented and intelligent man and i suspect he's also going to take a personal interest in this and i think there's so many eyes on this there's no reason why the social housing won't be built if especially if the developer can get some private funds presumably he needed that money to install some of the roads and sewers and water that will be necessary to serve more of the development No, i actually do believe uh, i do believe But I also will make a prediction, Jill, that within the next 10 years, this developer will be back at council saying, times have changed and I'd like more density and height to be approved so that this can become a truly complete community.
0: All right, I'm going to make a note of that comment because I think that is going to come back and uh, be very, uh, very relevant. Uh, Michael, I have one more question and I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit, but I know you were also watching the announcement from BC's housing minister, the legislation that would really change zoning and taking a lot of the power away, I think, from municipalities as far as upping laneway houses, multiplexes, townhomes in every community. What are your thoughts on that?
4: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased about this, and I'm impressed with the provincial government for following through. And uh, as some of my colleagues know, for years, every year at the Vancouver Sun, I write an article saying next year we're going to see more duplexes and triplexes and individually owned townhouses being built. And I've been generally wrong, although I did do a little development in West Vancouver where I put three homes on one lot, three lots in a row. And I did two developments with four homes on a lot. So people in West Van are familiar with those. But there's very, very few other examples because it often takes years to go through the process. But with what the province has announced, it's going to be a lot easier to build three homes or four homes on a a lot. And uh, that's going to it's not necessarily going to bring down the price of housing dramatically. It won't. But what it does mean is that instead of a $3 million house being offered, there might be some $750,000 homes and a $1 million homes in an area where otherwise the cheapest new house was $3 million. So that's part of it. The other thing is it helps us make better use of land. And as they often say, we're not making any more land, so we have to make better use of the land we already have. So I, I applaud this, and yet it's the province uh, playing in the municipal sandbox. But the reality is, I know many municipal politicians will be happy because now they can say to those angry, angry residents, we have no choice. We have to approve so many homes, and we have to allow this sort of development to proceed. And if my little development in West Van across from the West Van United Church is any example, even though 150 people spoke against it or wrote letters in opposition, when it was finished, they said, this is lovely. We need more of this.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's my
4: pleasure, Jill. All the best.